we can see that there's 1,600 dispensaries that still need to be built in California. But that's not perfect data yet. And the reason is... This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to an episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Rob Seacrest, co-founding president of Polaris Capital Group. Rob, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Excited to see you. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Rob. Learn about the capital markets, kind of what's going on in the cannabis space as funds, uh, as relates to funds, you know. Um, really excited to have another West Coast kind of representative thought as well. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm excited as well. Obviously, uh, Rob's expertise can be very beneficial, specifically here in the East Coast with some of the real estate. So we're looking forward to kind of get some of that insights there. So, Rob, before we kind of dive in, can you give a little background about yourself and how you got into the cannabis industry? Sure. So Polaris is an asset manager that specializes in private credit. Um, primarily value add is, is the transactions we are doing. I've been the co-founder of Polaris since 2010. Um, in 2014, our local congressman, Dana Rohrbacher, passed the most consequential legislation to, ever pa- to pass, in our opinion, to date, and that defunded the Department of Justice from any prosecution of cannabis-related business. And once that passed, we realized in our minds, this was the largest newly created asset class that probably nobody was looking at lending in a programmatic way. So we became the first dedicated lender in 2016, launched the first fund in 2018, and then converted to a private mortgage rate in 2020, got investment grade rated, and uh, first FDIC uh specialty use warehouse line of credit, first uh, bond offering with institutional investors, and most recently, the first securitization um, with institutional investors as well. So as the first, are you consistently paving the way? Obviously, there's no roadmap in saying, hey, this is how things do. How, How does that work when you're kind of paving the way for the first of? Yeah, so we've paved the way in commercial real estate lending prior to pivoting to cannabis. So we're not new to paving the way and that, that might be in thought process or in structure of deals. Um, we were the first to come up with a 100% loan-to-cost basis loan back in uh, 2010. And we teamed up with a hedge fund that put up the equity and did a profit split with our borrowers. And we lent to 50% loan-to-value um, with six months prepaid interest reserve. So we're not new to structuring and coming in up with ideas as the markets move around. But cannabis is, is challenging because when you run into third parties and you're trying to get through and thread the needle, we only have control over what we do internally. And when you start going and you have to rely on title insurance, property insurance, um, uh, errors and emissions insurance, things like that, and you're relying on third parties that may have a clause that says, if this is federally illegal, we won't insure, then it becomes a lot. We don't have the same uh, leverage that we would be able to, to have if we're just in a traditional market and we're just trying to get additional coverage or better pricing or whatever it might be. So when you don't have those, do you have to seek outside parties? Do you have to work with, with let's say, entrepreneurs to establish those? Like, Take us through like the origin of these early days. So traditionally, let's just start with title insurance. So you can typically still get in title insurance in one of two ways. One, by not disclosing that it's cannabis use. And I think that that's what most um, people do because the property may or may not be cannabis use the day it was a, that it was purchased. And so in their minds, they may think that there's, that's a, that is a, um, a path to take. 
we know because we've funded thousands and thousands of transactions and we have had to make title claims in our careers that um, anytime you're going to make a claim, they're going to find a way to deny it. And you never want to give that. You, you always want to battle that in the front side. And so they don't have the ability to, to write off the claim. What good is it if you can't, you can't utilize the insurance? And so, you know, they'll sometimes that one, one path is to not disclose it. And that gives you, that leaves you exposed. And the second way is that title and companies will sometimes give a, an inferior policy called a CLTA, which is just not worth the paper that's written on. But you could, you know, some, some funds or, or lenders may say, hey, we've got title insurance, but they just don't disclose what level of insurance they have. And so we won't accept that either. So our CEO is brilliant in how he thinks about things and the relationships that he has. And the rest of our team members have built relationships across the country where we may think of ways to get above and beyond where the typical access points might be. Um, I can't give too much detail, but we, we found a way to solve for these issues that I don't think anybody else would be able to figure out how, how to do how we did it and, um, and how we have it on transactions that are worth tens of millions to almost a hundred million. And in top, on top of that, getting the full coverage that we want specifically the way that we name it and the additional coverage and endorsements that we want. And these are all so important. And the reason I'm just going down this rabbit hole is that you want to de-risk every element where you possibly can. And when you're pivoting from traditional real estate, and these are just assumptions that you have these, when you pivot to this sector, you may or may not have those. And, and that adds additional risk. And so we don't want to pick up any more additional risk if we don't have to. And so in those early days, were there kind of conversations internally where you guys saw these these kind of absences within the cannabis space? And maybe you're like, hey, is it worth it to try to invest in this area to create this business that is existing in other industries? Were there ever conversations like that? Or were you guys just solely core focused on kind of commercial real estate and just kind of trying to keep the blinders on? So the Robark of Lumen Amendment passed in 2014. So it took us two years to... We could have closed the deal that day if we wanted to, but it took us two years to line up what we would call the closing process and all the back end and the third parties. And that is really, I think, a testament to how we think about things. Um, there's there's numerous transactions that closed during those years that that I'm sure none of them had, uh, or very, very few of them had an Alta title policy, if any. And then to get the coverage that we request, like for example, we insure for 125% as opposed to 100%. We don't want just our principal. We want the additional coverage that costs that for us to enforce and get that policy. So these are just things that if you've been a lender around for a long enough time that you have thought through and worked through and, and de-risked, um, you don't want to be responsible for paying all your own legal fees uh, to, to, to get a enforce a title uh, policy to, to, to pay. One of the things that we've seen is pretty popular here in the industry is sale leasebacks. And I'd like you to kind of expand on what that is and, and how it kind of works. Yeah. So a sales leaseback is different from a lender in that the sales leaseback owns the property. And so the way we kind of think about a sales leaseback is that it's kind of a synthetic loan of a 15 to 20 year loan to recover your entire principal. So it's a 100% loan um, recovered over 20 years. You've got the property, so you're never going to you know, have to foreclose on that. But the disadvantages in this particular industry is that you're completely cashing out the borrower day one, 
at a, at a period of time where, frankly, they're willing to, to do anything to, to, to free up cash uh, without having to sell uh, stock or, or raise more equity. And so you, you now un, unaligned the borrower's interest, previous borrower's uh, interest from that property to stay there. Um, and then you put them in a lease that has an escalator in there for the next 15 to 20 years. And that escalator is going to continue from an initial base rate in today's market, where most likely that as the markets become more and more efficient, that the base rate will, want to, will tighten or compress and become more efficient. And you're stuck in something that's going wider and wider and wider as costs of capital are going to come down. So we think that that is not necessarily the best um, strategy for a new emerging market from both emerging from the asset class and the regulatory. And, and God forbid that uh, you could do uh, interstate commerce. And now where those markets that you had for protective margins and limited license states now become evaporate overnight. And so those things are how we think about stuff. And we just don't think that that's uh, what's the right direction. So, you know, our expertise in lending, we, we just believe that this is a better, more efficient way to operate in the sector. What do you think was the motivation for a lot of the companies kind of jumping on that? Um, I think it was really, it was really popular like three years ago, right? Right after the pandemic almost. Yeah. Look, I can't say. So REITs are, are very popular because you're basically relying on the history of all REITs. Mortgage REITs are fairly new, which is debt. Traditionally, equity REITs are phenomenally popular because you get the accretive value of the, va- of the basis of the real estate increasing, which is nominal, but it's increasing over time. And then you have the cash flow, which is nominal too relative to a loan, um, but it's still cash flow that's passing through. But in addition to that, you get the depreciation all flowing through. In a fully stabilized, fully mature market, those, those trends and those data sets are fully baked across the country in all markets, all asset classes. When you come into this sector and you're bringing a structure that is for a fully mature market, both asset class and regulatory-wise, we just think that that might be a little bit further out in the risk profile or spectrum than than we'd feel comfortable. But look, I think it's working out and given enough time, it should work out over, over time. But if you just kind of think about it, if you get a set of tenants or if you get some regulatory reform or interstate commerce, you might have to reset all of the entire portfolios lease rate lending the lease rate basis that's a systemic write down of the entire portfolio if you have to do that and so will that happen i don't know you know the other way to think about it is that there's ways to make it so it's not as big of an impact but if you have to rewrite the lease to become market rate for your existing tenant if it's less than what it was that's going to affect the economic value or the income approach to that real estate and you're going to have to do a write down I mean, it's a massive, massive bomb just waiting to go off because what we all expect is that eventually we'll have some sort of interstate commerce where these markets that are currently protected will no longer be protected. And I think the difference, what you were saying, Rob, is we're in agreement, right? Your team is structuring for the long term. And I think some of these operators are now so focused on the short term. It's like, what can I do today to keep the lights on to produce product to continue moving forward? And I think that is the big disconnect we have in the industry. Yeah, if I could just add one nuance, that just increases the disparity of where that lease rate basis might start, as opposed to what it might have been within that asset class in that that time frame, where been where market rate might might be relative to other cannabis use assets. So, just expanding on that, when you talk about a fully baked market, are you talking about the industry as a whole, or are you talking about specific states individually? Great, great question, and I'm happy that you asked that. So. 
the entire country is going through a, you know, uh, each state is becoming medical and then recreational as they come along. And we believe that all 50 states will be approved for cannabis probably within three to five years. But that's not the market because the market, you shouldn't think about it that way today. And even if cannabis, the prohibition on cannabis is ended, it still doesn't make it so that it's a national market because it still falls to states' rights, what they decide to do in their own state. So when you think about it, how we think about it, it's each state is its own universal market, universe of the, of the market. And we don't think that any state has fully reached what we would call the maturation to a fully stabilized market, where the licenses have all kind of balanced out to where they're going. Typically, a brand new state will be Outdoor wholesale, no brands there yet that any any product will sell to anybody at any time. It's a super profitable market. And then you get a bunch of people that come in and you get compression. And then you get the, the people fall out and more experienced operators come in and build their indoor facilities. And that takes away from the outdoor wholesale market. And so we see this maturation through each of these markets and how it plays out. And it differs for each state based on their geography and what types of what what's happening in that that particular state is it limited license state is it just medical is it you know where are they at in that process and so we spend a lot of time thinking about how is the maturation happening in each state to a fully stabilized market once you read a, reach a fully stabilized market there probably won't be a whole lot a whole lot more new uh, big facilities being built the the price will become more uh, stabilized in the universe of the buyers in that state will have kind of balanced out. Just think about where we know where cigarettes are. We know where alcohol consumption is. We have really good metrics there. Now, they might trend off over time since uh, alcohol and tobacco are, are kind of moving a little bit over to cannabis, but we've got data sets. In here, nobody had those, so we had to build those data sets. So what do you think some of the hallmarks are going to be of market stabilization in these states? Well, I think that it differs in different states, and it also differs if there's going to be any state compacts between multiple states like California, Oregon, and Washington, and how that plays out. Some states have lower capex and opex costs and, and excise taxes and built, you know, employer taxes, all kinds of stuff where it might be way more efficient to, to grow in one state and sell in another state if you've got a compact going there. So you really got to think about all these things and continue to watch and evolve these things. And I would say that I don't want to get too far into what our, our data sets are saying, but I'll just give you a kind of a snapshot. So we can see that California, based on the universe of the population and based on the current statistics of what the usage is for the total universe of population per year, how much they're, they're consuming, we can see that there's 1,600 dispensaries that still need to be built in California. But that's not perfect data yet. And the reason is, is that most people don't know this, and I don't know it off the top of my head, but I think 70% of the counties in California are non-cannabis friendly. So you can't have a dispensary there. So you have this, you have this skewing of the large 40 million or so people in, in the state that have the ability to consume cannabis, and the percentages are all there. But yet you've only got dispensaries that are, can be in 30% of those counties. And so the, the data is showing that there's capacity there, but the regulatory limits are still there. Now, just a little more nuance. Some counties that are non-cannabis friendly have cities within that county that are illegal. 
So you get this freaking, and so we had to map all this stuff. We've mapped each type of license, uh, where it's geographically located, who owns it, and where we've got all those maps. And then we can look at a, at a geographic map and we can see where other licenses are ro- located. We can see what the tax universe is for that particular license. Is it under this excise tax or this city's tax? So we can look at, it might be two cultivation places right next to each other, but they might be under different tax constraints for or, or uh, values basis there. And so somebody, we had to start looking at that and analyzing that, that data in that way. And I think we were the first to do that. So I got to go back. Just to clarify, you said California has potentially 1,600 dispensaries that still need to be built. And I can already already hear everybody screaming, but Rob, California's so cutthroat, everyone's going out of business. How? So to have enough capacity for the entire state to be serviced statewide, if, if in a perfect market that was fully mature, that's what the capacity is. So we are constantly having to reevaluate our data and, and look at it. Uh, for example, Las Vegas or Nevada, Las Vegas has this massive tourism flow. And so we have to factor that into our, our data sets as well. New York is another state that has 1,600 dispensaries under. Now, it doesn't factor in what those are the two high, highest states. So what that basically tells you, it's your, the way I'm saying it is not the, you're you're absorbing the data in the wrong way. What, what it's telling you is that the market is not stabilized. What it's telling you is that there's massive capacity there that is unfulfilled. How that it gets accessed and how that comes out is 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 regulatory landscape within the state and, and as it builds a more mature market. So those data sets are set on what's the universe of the, of the total population. If the total population served based on what today's metrics are. Are these conversations that you guys are having with regulators and or try to like help facilitate that landscape change from a regulatory environment? All the time, but we're a little bit higher up level than that. So um, we're more speaking with the uh, the congressman and and the senator. So I, I've been speaking with Senator Daines, Cory Booker, numerous congressmen, and we're mainly at the federal level. We're trying to help educate the le- the legislators as well as as the cannabis investors, and everybody in the sector, because I think we have a bigger data set than anybody in the country. And what we're trying to, to utilize is provide this information to them so that when they think about what the solutions that they're trying to provide. So, I mean, just safe banking in itself implies that there's no banking. And, you know, we're, we're sitting here telling you there's 684 banks that are doing deposit relations, 15% of all the banks. Any bank could take a cannabis deposit if they fill out the MSARS, which is a marijuana suspicious activity report, as long as they get it right, uh, they won't lose their banking license. They're probably not going to take that risk unless they've built that compliance department out. So we're, we're just trying to educate uh, the entire nation, both you know borrowers, investors, legislators. We're, we're trying to move this market because we think that a lot of people did a lot of things on misinformation, but from, from regulatory, legislative, and from investors, when they had our, our knowledge and data sets, they would have known that this doesn't make sense here. This isn't going to roll out the way you think it's going to roll out. Yeah, I think all those are, are so valuable and so important. I think just given the way the industry is broken up by different states and all the different rules and regulations, I think people just rushed in and assumed this is the gold rush we need to get in, assuming that things would unfold a certain way. And one of the things that I'm curious to get your perspective on, Rob, is that given the fact that we are still early and no one's met that peak maturation, 
we likely have consolidation going forward, which means a lot of companies are going to die off. But I'm more curious to know these companies that are vertically integrated, eventually, they're not going to want to be. How are they going to dispose of those assets in certain states? We've seen other companies move up. How do you see that unfolding? Yeah, so I I think that you're making some assumptions that may or may not hold. And I think that that's the problem with everybody. So a lot of people have thought that are some of the big MSOs think that you can only have size and scale to be to to be able to compete no matter what in the entire country, however way it it plays out. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, we've underwritten 2000 transactions. We've got 32 transactions in our portfolio. And there are are guys that are in our portfolio with, uh, you know, 30,000 square feet combined through maybe three three different buildings that there is no way that an MSO would ever be able to compete that the efficiency that they're operating and stay at that level of efficiency consistently because these guys are so small, so nimble, so efficient. They could make that and pivot on what things that they're learning and developing across their entire uh, operation within a matter of months where a large MSO, it takes time for them to think about it. And they have a wide geography and jurisdiction of, of regulatory basis and how things, how labor, it, it all changes potentially. Right? So it may not make sense to do the same thing in a different region of the country because of the power costs there or, or the weather there. So as you get bigger and bigger, you may not be getting those efficiencies that you think that you're getting because it's all regional you know, the, the buyers are different in different parts of the country, the labor force, the, the, the level of service providers and the, and the ancillary service providers, packaging, air conditioning, power units and water supply, all of it changes. And like we're seeing in Desert Hot Springs, one of the first cities to go recreational in California, because they went uh, first, they have this enormous um, uh, supply of ancillary service providers that can they can support the air conditioners and the power and the water where you might not have that in Michigan, uh, you know, or, or, or there, there's there's just these things that you pick up because there's other parts of the business than just the cannabis business that needs to support that. Just think Napa, you've got bottling, you've got packaging, you've got, you know, co-packers, you've got all kinds of different things. And so there's more to it than, than everybody thinks. Oh, yeah, absolutely loaded. Can states expedite the stabilization of the market or it, it's not as simple as? Yeah, no, I, I think that the fastest way to, 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 to expedite the stabilization is on a limited market. So and, and when I say an unlimited market, I think that people take that the wrong way. That's the fastest way in market to have market to have the market play out as opposed to artificially support it. And so to have an unlimited market, if you think about it, in reality, it's never going to be unlimited market because each facility has to be, each license has to be associated with real estate to have that license. And so there's only so many places that are 600 feet from a school residence or church and another facility or whatever it might be. And in like, for example, California, there's only green zones that you can actually even be within that zone. Then you still have to be a, far, a distance away from those other items. So it's unlimited from the state's ability to issue license. But geographically, it is limited. Um, uh, and so and not only that, it's just the, the we believe it's the way that the market moves there's a reason that laissez-faire has is, is been proven as the, as the best approach. You are going to get the most efficient markets the quickest um, in that s- strategy. Also, the economics play into that, right? The supply and demand factor. It doesn't matter how much cannabis you grow. At the end of it, we need to have purchasers that are buying it. So as markets stabilize, do consumers benefit as, as well? Or is it both sides, consumers and businesses benefit? Or is it more so just businesses? 
Well, I think that uh, the businesses forced to become more and more competitive by unlimited license because in California, they're having to compete against somebody else that can produce lower. So we have one, one bar in our portfolio that could probably drop their prices by 20 or 30% and still be profitable. And there's just no way that MSO could come into this state and compete against them that came from an unlimited license state. They haven't been forced to become that efficient because of market. There's just no reason for them to be. So you're not going to keep grinding it, grinding it, and grinding it out because the guy next door to you uh, is able to sell less or a new guy just came next door. If you're a limited license state, you know there's nobody else coming, or at least until they, the, the legislation decides to increase the number of licenses. And you're like, oh, man okay, our license value just went down and we just picked up new competition. We thought forever we'd be good. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to one thing you said earlier in terms of like geographic regions affecting businesses starkly, right? And so uh, Brian actually mentions this all the time is that we don't grow all of our food and like every state doesn't grow all their own food, right? And so there are locations where power is cheaper, where they have better sunlight for cannabis and they'll just inherently be able to grow at efficiencies much greater and at costs much lower. So from a long-term perspective, from a real estate, a commercial real estate standpoint, like how much are you guys looking at certain areas where there could be big markets, but there's not a, a long-term history of, of agricultural businesses operating? So it's something we have to think through on each transaction. So a lot of times people ask me, what, what state are we looking for? What markets are we excited about? And it's not really how we look at it. Because we're a specialty use lender and we solely focus on just cannabis, we're not just trying to aggregate having um, transactions in every part of the state. We're actually looking at each transaction as a standalone in and of itself. And in today's market, is this particular transaction got the most experienced operator, the best sponsor? And is this, and, and is this market a market that we still feel comfortable that it makes sense going here. So that's how we think about things. And, and to your broader question, I, I would say that we're not really like looking for markets that say, hey, there's opportunity in this market because we're not the owner of the real estate. We're not the owner of the, the cannabis build, uh, business. We're, we're, uh, the, for us, the, as far as we, how we think about it is, if we had to replace a tenant in that in that market, how comfortable are we that we could replace a tenant and, and be able to uh, reposition that asset where we are still comfortable being in that basis that we lent on originally from all aspects? And as far as the markets maturing and becoming saturated or, or fully stabilized and mature, that is always evolving. And so at a certain point, we believe that the entire market across all 50 states for just the real estate is about $50 billion. For the real estate. And so at a certain point, we'll reach what we would call the, the, the capacity of what would support the market. Now, that capacity may change because you may find ways that have become more efficient to grow cannabis or, or turn it faster. And so that square footage, that's just based on the current information that we have today that could change. And at a certain point, you're of all those real estate assets for 50 billion, if that's what it is in the future. At a certain point, you're going to be refreshing those assets. You're going to be doing a reposition. New operator will be coming in or they'll be bringing in new technology or, or whatever it might be. So once you're at the stabilization for the country, 
there's always going to be some things turning around, but that's why we added a, a two loan products or two total loan products. So we had Bridge Lender where originally our idea was just to go out and, and let the borrowers build out the assets and then let our competitors pay us off. Well, we realized that that's a short, we're, we're here for the long term and in decades and decades out, there won't be that many assets turning around on the bridge lending. So we offered a fully stabilized product that we believe that ultimately, and we were prepared to do it with some of the things that, that I mentioned earlier in our bond and our securitization, that we think that we can be competitive with banks. And there are other mortgage REITs that compete directly with the, the federal government on lending. And so we have the capacity to do that. And we think that we can go head to head once all these things, once some other things get you know, we're have trouble because of, of uh, custodial of assets and, and, and different different structured products that we can't get all the investors that we'd like into those yet. And that once that changes, which we think safe bank will be a step the right way. Once we start to get all the full, we've got some of the main structured products for lending uh, or for investors today to bring in institutionals, but we don't have the, the universe of what would typically be available for those structured products within our fund, which are uh, securitization and bonds that you would have if we could clear out this, we could deconflict state policy from federal policy. When do you think we'll get safe banking? Well, so, you know, I was the one that announced after I had met with Senator Daines that we had, he had the 60 votes necessary. Um, And that was about a month ago. And, you know, we've been speaking directly with with numerous um, uh, elected officials, staffs that are working on this. And um, I think the other thing that's important to note, and I think this might be the biggest tell of all, is that nobody seems to care much for Schumer because he has so much control in calendaring the the vote. If, if we've got everything, and it's all it's, everybody's ratified it, and we got Section Ten clear language on that, we're through all that. Schumer might not calendar, it, and we could just blow past another Congress or election period. But what I can tell you, and I think this is a really important tell, is that from all people that we're speaking with, and I'm speaking with them, we're speaking directly. This isn't through a lobbyist. This is a secondhand. Schumer's staff is the most responsive they've ever seen them, and they're turning stuff back around immediately. And so I think that what that's signaling is that there's a willingness that this is important for them to allocate the resource and time to push it forward. And so I think that that's the most important thing. So will it, will it happen this year? I don't know, but I think that it's moving the right direction. It's going to, at some point, it's going to happen. And I'm, I've been pretty fairly pessimistic all the way up to here. One, a little bit more optimistic is that the House and the Senate passed the same bill. So it doesn't need to be uh, uh, ratified between the two parties. And, and it looks like they just need to get through the Section 10 language. And uh, I've been told that there's a, a backup plan if that language doesn't get the, through the way that they want it to go. But then we got to re- recount those votes again. How does safe banking change your guys' business? Does it at all? Well, so our business is 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 put together to where we can do well and thrive in the current landscape. But we, we believe that, that any meaningful legislation will help the entire industry. And that's why we're helping to push it. And we want that. We want to be an advocate for that. We want to be an advocate for the industry. For us, the advantage is, is that uh, our cost of capital um, decreases, um, our margins decrease, and the universe of institutional investors significantly increases. So I think that we pick up a massive upside. The downside is that, you know, now every lender can come into the sector and take their run at this sector. Now, 
what we've traditionally seen out of the hundred private lenders that we've seen come into the space and, and dozens and dozens and dozens of federally chartered, state chartered, and, and, and community banks lending in the sector is they just don't understand the specialty use asset nature of it. And they don't understand how to how to think their way through and solve the things that we've solved. And, and a lot of times that just takes experience and, and a learning curve. And so we think that our data project, all of the experience that we've had will give us a competitive advantage. And then if and when that does happen, we've structured to compete against the biggest asset managers. We've institutionalized the entire company to, to be ready for that when it happens. Yeah, scenario planning might be involved. It's probably just very fascinating to understand. All right, if, if this goes down, we'll go right. And if this goes down, we'll take two steps to the left. And, and understanding how the implications are, are so aggressively involved. So that's why it was so important for us to achieve these structured products, the bond that we did, and then securitization. These are the things that in a normalized lending world that you have access to. We've proven that we can do it. The limiting factor here now is the universe of buyers for those particular assets is constrained because it's still federally illegal. Could you just uh, briefly explain the concept of securitization? Yeah. So it's just a structured financial product to to make it as clear as as possible uh, or summarize it. It's basically you're taking a pool of your assets. In our scenario, we took, I think, $70 million worth of no loans. We segregated those off from the rest of the portfolio. And of that 70 million, we sold the most senior tranche of 45 million to another set of, of investors, institutional investors. And because we sold the senior tranche of that, we were able to pick up a spread because we sold it at a lower rate. So we've isolated the, the you know, there's no recourse on those loans. We've isolated any exposure to the rest of the fund and we've siloed it. It's the, it's the most beneficial structure for putting together additional capital and how the tools that you would use to go and compete against banks out there. It's one of banks, other, all kinds of financial institutions use this type of structure. So, you know, it's just another way of monetizing and utilizing our existing portfolio. So we would bring in that 45 million and we would reissue that into new, new transactions. So we're picking up, we're picking up a spread on what we sold, even though we don't own it anymore. And we brought in the cash, we'll reoriginate that. And then we could do it over and over and over. Those institutional investors, are they looking to get exposure in the space a little more hesitant? Does it, does it, does it vary? Um, yeah. So I think that there's two ways to think about it. One is that they, they're looking for diversification of their own portfolio into a specialty use asset class that's less impacting their real estate or economic downturn. And uh, I think that the, the other way to, to, to think about it is that they don't understand the, the space. And most institutional investors, just to give you kind of a landscape, they're usually allocating like minimum check sizes of like 50 million, 100 million each. And they don't want to be more than five or 10% of the issuance. And so we don't have that big of a portfolio and we don't even have that big of a, of a universe of buyers to even fill it out. And so that makes it very challenging to get these structured products completed because of the asset class mix within the portfolio that you're selling and then the diversity of the investors that are buying and the sizing, all these things make it enormously more challenging. And just the custody of the asset, who's going to hold that? And how do we make all that transfer happen? And who signs off on the tax implications of the sale? And can that attorney, are they even able to be affiliated with anything cannabis and like it's insane. Sounds like a lot of fun. I don't think you, you, you can't Google those answers. There was, there was 64 attorneys on the closing email uh, at the end. 
they always win. The lawyers always, <laughs> always win. Always win. <laughs> so, Rob, rank these in value for the cannabis industry or most important for the operators in the industry. Safe banking, removal of 280E, interstate commerce. Well, I think that um, removal of 280E is the most impactful because how I think about it, and I'm, I'm not an expert in, in tax code, but the way I think about it is that impacts every single cannabis business across the entire country at once. Everybody gets to save on that. And, and what most people may or may not know is that we're, we're talking about 280E is the ability to write off your expenses at the federal level. Well, a lot of people may or may not know that there are states that are cannabis friendly, like Chicago, or uh, sorry, Illinois, that even though the state is cannabis friendly, they still won't let you write off your expenses at the state level. So why I think that that one's the most impactful is that Firstly, every single com- company gets 20 to 40% uplift on what their increase in net revenue, I, I'll call it. And I think that that is the most meaningful one. And, and it depends on how it happens. If you were to deschedule it to three, I think that now that also would free up some things on banking and some other things potentially there as well, possibly. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but I think that the, the 280E is the biggest one or the most impactful, but I think it's the hardest one to get. I think that, I think that it'll be difficult for, um, the, it to be descheduled or it, for however they codify it to wave off all that tax revenue that the feds were getting without putting in a new tax excise. So be careful what you wish for is what I say. I think that everybody kind of thinks that, Hey, if we get this removed, it's, it's gone and we don't, we don't have it anymore. I don't know if that's the case. If you're not going to get another tax to replace it. I think that the next one for, for the industry would be some meaningful form of safe banking. I think that that helps. That clears a path for institutional investors. And so I think what most people don't realize is that one of the reasons that this sector is really struggling for so long, at least domestically in the United States, is that there is no institutional investors. All of the movement, all of the things that you've seen happen, all of the exacerbation of emotional purchases and all the waves that you've seen have been all retail investors. There's no institutional investors able to participate in a U.S.-based company. And so the, the first time that that path has been cleared through was by Jason Wild uh, through the CSC. And that was why that was so significant. Um, and so that's the first U.S.-based cannabis company that institutional investors can actually invest in and go through Pershing. It's, it's insane. And so why that's so important is that, that as big as the retail market is, in reality, it's, it's nothing compared to institutional capital allocators. And so if we can get, you know, the, the safe banking pass, I think that that's, will move us towards where institutional investors can come in. And hopefully you can get to the major exchanges, NASDAQ and, and New York Stock Exchange. We go to the New York Stock Exchange uh, all the time. We've got a, a great relationship there. And, and the, one of the reasons that we have such carte blanche there is that they are really leaning into learning about the sector and being front-leaning to being able to uh, bring on cannabis companies once it becomes uh, federally legal. Let that sit for, for all the people that are very, very hopeful. What is the most expensive lesson you have learned? Man, so lessons are learned in, in dollars and time. So and the, the least expensive lesson that you can learn is actually listening to somebody else's mistake. And so I like to give an example. When I had my first company, an action sports company, I went to the people that failed and I asked them what for advice. And most no, most people don't go to people that fail. And the reason that I went to people that failed, this was in my 20s, is because I figured they'd, they'd be honest with me. 
They're like, oh, frick, dude, don't do this. It sucked. This is what I freaking lost everything from doing this, this, and this. A, a person that's successful is only going to give you high level of what's working and they're not going to give you any, anything special there. So I think the number one is, is to listen and find out from other people. I can't tell you how valuable it would be if you're trying to get into the sector or any business, go find people that recently failed the, the closest, more closer geography or, or similar to your, your situation or what you're, you're going to be doing the better. But for us, um, you know, I think that we've, dodged most of, of the uh, the bullets. Um, one of the ones that we learned was, um, you know, and, and this happens whether it's cannabis or not cannabis. You've got small towns that um, have building departments and those building departments have the power to issue certification of occupancies and the, and the uh, CUPs, conditional use permits for the cannabis use in these properties. And um, sometimes those people are not doing things that were what was said contractually or or by permits that were issued of what's supposed to happen in the future because maybe they have some economic uh, incentive for something else happening. And we did run into that in a city in California. And um, it was really interesting to see how low-level city officials were putting the entire city at risk from a, a massive lawsuit and losing their entire cannabis goodwill from the industry um, by simply trying to force force in a cannabis operator that they thought was better into a permit that was already issued to somebody else. Um, and so, you know, uh, luckily we did we took a, a, a hit of time on that one, but not not monetarily. And that can happen in in just just remember this 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 stuff can play out in any sector. And, and, and real estate is a massive. You've got all kinds of different types of transactions. But a lot of these small towns, you just have people that are work operating in their own personal best will, and um, you know that is something that you you can't underwrite for that. You know, um, you can sue them, um, and that's you're suing a city and. You know, that, that's, uh, that's may or may not be worth it. What is one factor statistic about the inner workings of the cannabis industry that shocks lawmakers? Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that there's ample banking and that the number of depositors went from 702 to 684 is actually going down. And of all 2,000 and now probably 3,000 transactions we've ever underwritten, we've never seen a transaction where either the property co, our borrower, or the the cannabis operator, the opco, the tenant didn't have banking in place. Uh, and so, the, you know, they're thinking that they're solving for, for banking in the sector, like that this legislation passing will make it so that there's no issues with cash anymore. That's not the issue. The issue is you can't process credit cards on freaking federal system. So you're still going to have the same problem. Uh, and, and even if you get safe banking passed, there's not many more banks that are going to come into the sector to build up the compliance department because you still have to have the compliance. So Cory Booker, he really listened and he got us right to his staff right away. And uh, a lot of the congressmen that we know didn't know what they didn't know. And we're like, buddy, what you're working on, and especially when we speak to state officials, buddy, we talked to the state of New York two years ago and told them that this we weren't telling about the licensing, but they were talking about their their equity fund, and we're talking about their social equity justice, uh, their social equity program. We're like, we can't lend to somebody if you just give them the money unless you're the guarantor. Th th that's not going to work. And we recently, they are trying to solve for something that is that doesn't have a use case to, to to fix it from the other side. 
And so all of those, let's just say that they issue 100 licenses, they give those licenses away. Well, I can't lend off that license to somebody unless they they have a guarantor that has the, the, the financial strength for us to lend on and the experience. And so we're like, how do you think about that? If you can't, you know, so there's some rules about interested financial parties, but, you know, we're, we were telling them early on, we're like, look, maybe the first thing you should do is, is qualify the people, which I think some of them may or may not do that from a business perspective. They're looking at it for purely social equity to start usually, but you don't want to set them up for failure. You, you want to make sure that these people are successful. And so putting them into a business, give them a license. They've never operated a, a, a retail business before, never had any compliance, never regulatory. They, they, don't, they only broke you know, rules is how they got there. They qualified them. Now you expect them to operate by that. that you might need to put some, some, some infrastructure support around that. In my experience, whenever someone just gives me something and nothing in return, it's called a gift. Yeah, well, when you... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I just, I, 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 but I think about things a lot and I'm like, okay, so they're going to give this license. So on their state taxes, they could probably write off that gift. Let's just say that that license market value is a million dollars. So the states says, hey, we can waive that. But how are you going to waive that at the federal? That's that's in ordinary income in the one year. Like now you just sell, like, hey, it's free, but I got to pay the taxes on it. So are you going to you're going to ramp up the federal taxes on on that for them too. Like so, what my suggestion was for the state of New York, and this is in particular because I I went so far down the rabbit hole. I'm like, buddy, why don't you guys start by first making sure that anybody that you're talking to to have to qualify them or or that in the final round for a license that they have vetted counsel to represent them. Maybe start there because you're you're working with a counterparty that has no idea what they're getting into to represent them. And most likely it's their friend or somebody that has an interest in, in getting it. And that's not what you want. You, If you're really trying to do this, they need representation that is an expert in cannabis licensing. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the best part about New York is the fact that we were the first state ever to legalize and we are a very small state. So the fact that we have only nine or 10 open dispensaries just shows how well we are from an infrastructure standpoint. I think you said New York. I'm not sure if you're being facetious or, or, or <laughs> well. I mean, because there's so many states for us to peel from to like to learn from others' mistakes, and we've kind of attacked it as in like, all right, we're gonna just kind of disregard some of those lessons. We're just gonna take this path right here. To the oh, right. I think that I love New York. I think that they are so gifted in being able to establish a new bottom for for exactly what. <laughs> Case study Harvard Business School. I, I mean, I, here I, we I, come. I, if you would have asked anybody in the industry, can you can anybody mess it up worse? And I mean, Chicago <laughs> had a pretty bad bad situation. And can like I don't think anybody would have said, "Hey, if we had an over under for making for better or worse," I don't think there would have been any money on making it worse than the worst whatever the worst license is. But pretty, I think they, they accomplished it. It's a, it's a major achievement. Pretty pretty low <laughs> bar to to come below for sure for sure. All right. Rob, we're going to do a prediction. What is the first state to reach maturation, and when do you think it occurs? Now, I'm not looking at our data to make that prediction, so this is just purely speculation. I would say that it's probably going to be California, uh, and there's a lot of reasons why. I think that, the, that, I think that you've got a legislation 
that is a supermajority, and that gives you competitive advantage to uh, getting things done there that's pro-cannabis. And so most people may or may not know that, that, that the Republicans don't matter whatsoever in the state of California. Anything that the Democrats decide to vote on, they don't need a, a single vote from the Republicans. So I think, and, and the fact that it's unlimited license and that it's a state that has such a history in, in cannabis, whether it's legacy markets or not, I think there's a self-interest for them to, to, to the legislation is, is an important element of that. And I think that, 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 that combined with the fact that it's an unlimited license will give them the largest head start. When? Yeah, that's a tougher one to say, you know, um, you know, just to be safe, I'd like to say five years, you know, um, because I think that even you might get to, you might get to full market, you might get the full market starting to, to move through all 40 million have the capacity of whatever percentage buys, but it still hasn't shifted through geographically throughout the state because it's such a large state. And just by geography, a guy in Eureka is not, doesn't have the same access to cannabis as a guy in Los Angeles. And so I think that you have to take those things in, into consideration. I think a lot of people just discount or never think about geography, the size of the state and the actual physical location, the latitude, the general weather, what's the weather, whether they're one light, 1% loss of light uh, is 1% loss in their harvest. And I think that people need to be thinking about that and, and understand if you're doing outdoor greenhouses, and you've got a, a, a climate that is that is very good ca- climate like California, but then you had uh, 14 storms in a row come through this, this earlier this year. That's going to impact what the production is for this year's cannabis from what was coming through at that time. 100%. Kellen? Uh, I'm going to pick a different state. I think Washington. It's a free market state as well. I think they did some smart things at the beginning where they kind of decoupled retail from kind of like the the manufacturing and cultivation portion. They do have a very kind of robust history of cultivating hops and other crops that are really similar to the to the cannabis plant. And I think kind of those early days, it was just kind of a, a street fight, if you will, in the Washington market. And it has kind of mellowed out. Uh, they have their own track and trace system. So I think that there's less kind of lobbying going on from outside as well. Um, and the state of Washington seems pretty put together as a regulatory environment. Um, I'm speaking as a Coloradoan, but uh, that's my outside perspective on it. Um, and so for all those reasons, I think that it, it will. And, and I still don't think they accept outside money, right? Washington state does not accept outside investors yet. Um, so I think for all those reasons, they'll probably reach maturity, I think, first. I think what do you think, Ryan? Go ahead, Rob. I think that's a disadvantage to out. You, you want to not limit any, uh, you, you want to have as unlimited as possible. Um, and I think that that when you part putting those artificial barriers up, that people find ways to, to get through there. It's just a pledge of a document uh, of this interest or whatever it is. Um, I think that that constrains it. You want it to be as transparent as possible and efficient as possible. And if you start every barrier that you put up, whatever you think you're solving, you just create another issue. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, definitely great. So I would 100% agree with Rob on the California, but unfortunately, per the rules of the podcast, I cannot select California. So I will have to select a New York. New York. (laughs) I knew it. By by 2030, (laughs) we might have 20 dispensaries, right? But man, are they going to operate efficiently? 
<laughs> I mean, it's we have very stable weather conditions. We have great growing conditions. They grow a ton of products here. I, it's it's ideal. We'll just grow it all indoors, which oh, is super efficient. Yeah, I guess you could tell my really. I guess I would take Oregon if I had to choose another one, just given the fact that I think when you're seeing the price compression and companies kind of struggling, I think that's the part of the the maturation of the industry from a consolidation standpoint that is necessary for the growth of the industry. And while it's unfortunate for a lot of people to lose you know, their business. I think that's critical for the strengthening of the market. Yeah. And I think that you got to be a little bit more nuanced than just saying the general of the cannabis market, which state's going to stabilize first, because if you get any state compacts, then you got to look at, okay, if, if California, Oregon, and Washington all go together, then there's a reason that, that California is growing most of, of the uh, harvest of, of, of non-cannabis crops out there. It's just better climate. There's more, more infrastructure, more, more labor. It's it just it's, it, the, the state has the, the geography and the climate better built for it. And so I think that if you're talking about cultivation, especially uh, uh, outdoor or greenhouse, that you got to start, you got to, you got to kind of be more nuanced. And I say this in so many of the podcasts and so many things that I talk about is that it would be like saying, which, which, which uh, state is the real estate market going to be the best in? Well, what do you mean? Like, do you mean multifamily owner occupied? You make a mistake by lumping everything together. Yeah. I think that's perfectly said. And I think that describes the industry as, as, as well as you can in a simplistic standpoint. So Rob, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more and they want to follow you. Where can they find you? Well, they can follow us on our YouTube channel, which we're trying to get out educational uh, videos quite frequently. We post those on LinkedIn and on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And you can follow us at FloresCG uh, is, I think, the Twitter handle. You could reach out to Investor Relations IR at FloresCG.com if you have uh, interest in, in our fund. For borrowers, uh, it's info at FloresCG.com. And uh, just to let people know, we only lend on transactions that are secured by real estate to experienced operators, and typically nothing less than 10 to 30 million for our loan sizing. And you've got to be an extremely well uh, healed um, uh, sponsor that would qualify for a bank quality transaction and an operator that has existing experience that, that is a proven track record. So those are some of the pre, pre-existing uh, things to know. And we don't do any calls. We wouldn't get anything done. Everybody wants to talk to us to get an idea of what's happening in their market. So you have to email a detailed loan request if you're looking for information uh, for us or response from us. Awesome. We'll link it all in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. 
Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.